The episode you're about to listen to was released back when the Mere Christians podcast was called The Call to Mastery. Now, if you love Mere Christians, you're still going to love these older episodes because the majority of each conversation focuses on how the gospel influences the work of our guests. With that disclaimer out of the way, please enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. This is a podcast for Christians who want to do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. Each week, I host a conversation with a Christian who's pursuing world-class mastery of their craft. We talk about their path to mastery, their daily habits, and how their faith influences their work. Today's guest is an extraordinary leader. His name is Dr. Nito Kubain. He's the president of High Point University in North Carolina, who has led that university through some explosive growth uh, through some really challenging years. Before heading up High Point, he had lots of success as an entrepreneur and a banking executive. And today, in addition to his role at High Point, he serves on a couple of really impressive corporate boards, including the financial giant BB&T and Lazy Boy. So Dr. Kubain and I, we recently sat down, we talked about his remarkable story, emigrating to the U.S. from the Middle East. We talked about the three things he did to cause his university to grow 5% during the COVID-19 pandemic, while the average university lost 16% of its enrollment. And we talked about the two other lists, other than his to-do list, that Dr. Kubain keeps handy every single day. I think you're going to love this conversation with Dr. Kubain. Dr. Kubain, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure being with you. We were just talking before we started recording. I had one of your exceptional students at High Point, Jenna Fortier on the podcast a few months ago, was so impressed. I offered her a job right on the spot as soon as the interview was done. You got to be pretty proud of the students you're producing there at High Point. Yeah. Well, you know what, Jordan? We're blessed and highly favored. This university is a God, family, and country institution. Uh, we shout it from the mountaintop. We are proud of our students. We often say this is not a perfect institution, but it is an extraordinary one. And we have grown so much, and we believe that God's hand is on this work. And we are on God's side, and Jenna is yet is just one example of, of the enormity of positive production of human leaders, if you will, in this university. And so our, our job here, our goal here, our mission here is to plant seeds of greatness in the, um, in the mind, heart, and soul. And you can't just do it in the mind. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make sure their heart is in the right place and their soul is, is filled with faith. And, and while we, of course, are an inclusive university and we welcome everyone, we make it quite clear up front that we're a God family country. And, and, and I say at all the open houses, if that bothers you, we understand that. We respect that. But this may not be the school for you. Yeah. So speaking of those seeds, right? Planted in these kids' souls. I, I want to go back to the beginning of your story and the seeds planted in your heart, your soul. So you, you grew up in the Middle East, raised by a single mother after your father died when you were young. And your mother raised you in the Christian tradition, which I find so interesting. How rare was that back then growing up in the Middle East? We think of the Middle East as a place that's filled with, with other religions, specifically Muslims and so on. But if you think about it realistically, and think about the Roman Crusades, and of course, if you think about Jesus' um, uh, journey to Damascus and Saul becoming Paul and the church beginning to grow throughout that area uh, in Turkey and Greece and, of course, what is now Jordan and Israel and, and all those places. Uh, so, so in many, many ways, the Christian church was born in the Middle East. And, and there are many, many people who, of course, are and were of the Christian faith. Uh, and so my family has always been... Christians, you know, I grew up as a an Anglican Protestant in America. You would think of it more as Episcopalian, but really, this 
follows the Canterbury sector. And, and my mother grew up as a Greek Orthodox. And my wife now is, my wife also grew up as a Greek Orthodox, but became a Protestant when we got married all the way back in 1977. So here's what I say. Out of adversity can emerge abundance. Those who have faithful courage uh, can can make good things come to be, right? So uh, none of us is an island. We all need a depth of faith that God has a plan for my life and that God will guide that plan. And I just need to get up in the morning, believe in it, and then get and 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 do the work, not just not just stay in bed and expect God to take care of me. So my my daddy died when I was six years of age, and I've often said, you know, I've never had a dad. He was sick for three four years. Never had a dad who took me to the circus, threw me a ball, read me a book, sang me a song, uh, or talked with me man to man. He died when I was six years of age. My mother had fourth grade education, and my mother brought up five of us. I was the youngest, but three boys, two girls. Um, and my daddy was not successful, and he left her with debt and the responsibility of these five children. My mother then learned a new vocation. She became a seamstress. She made clothes for people. She worked day and night to bring, you know, um, some money to, to, to feed us and clothe us. But here's the deal, Jordan. She never, she never ever made me feel that I am lesser than. I always felt that, you know, I am enough. And she believed, uh, she had a, a, a deep faith that said that God will take care of us, you know. She'd buy a chicken on a Monday, Jordan, and that chicken would last us all week. One day it'll be, you know, um, chicken. One day she'll put rice with it. One day it'll be soup, etc. So she was very, very capable. And she taught me some of the best principles and the best lessons in my life, which, which then I went on to write many books, as you know, and give thousands of speeches and so on. But most of it came from this woman with fourth grade, a woman of faith who believed that God will provide, and she was a terrific disciple. So yeah, that's, you know, that's my background. My mom bought a one-way ticket to send me to America uh, because she believed, you know, you know, in the 60s, we had the East and the West, right? We had the Soviet Union, we had America. And she saw America as a Christian land and a and a place where you can pursue your opportunities. So she went on to, to be with the Lord back in 05. Uh, believe it or not, I became president of Hype University on January 3rd, 05. And, and my first board meeting was January the 24th. And, and, and five o'clock that morning, my phone rang, said, your mom passed away. I came and did the board meeting with a big strategic plan. And then we, my family and I caught a plane and went over to the Middle East for her, for her uh, funeral and so on. So, so yeah, you know, a lot of people look at my life and say, by all accounts, I, I could have, I could have taken the wrong turn, but, but I have not. I tell these students at High Point University, you know, I've never smoked a marijuana cigarette. <laughs> I've never, I've never been drunk in my life. I, uh, my mother used to say to me, the circumstances in which you find yourself uh, do not determine where you end up. They only, they only d determine where you start, not where you end up. And what you choose is what you get. And I've always attempted to make good choices. And, and I was in business 30 plus years. And when I became president of Hype University, I try to bring those same messages to our students every day. Yeah. So you've had a phenomenally successful career in business, now in higher education, high points growing like a weed. But I, I want to go back to an earlier chapter in your career. I, I, I read that while you were in college here in the States, you worked as a youth director for a, a bit of time at a church and experienced you know, a lot of fruit in that work. I'm curious what led you to walk away from working within the four walls of a church. Oh, that's a very interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. I grew, <laughs> up, I grew up in the church. I mean, when I grew up, I was very active in my church and my youth group and so on. That was a natural, if you will. But here's sure, yeah. what happened when, when, when I came to America, I had no money. I didn't know you know anybody. and it was, it was pretty rough. Um, and so, uh, in my first year, I lived in my first two years, I lived in Eastern North Carolina, a small town called Mount Olive and, yeah. and nicest people you'll ever meet. And of course they've never seen a quote unquote, a foreigner before, uh, <laughs> you know, an accent, and especially someone who comes from the Middle East and the yeah. Holy Land. And so slowly somebody invited me to go speak at their Sunday school or something. And then somebody else. And then the, the president of the school would have all these meetings in free will Baptist churches. The school was a free will Baptist school. It was a two-year school. 
And, and um, these were fundraising events. You'll have dinners, and these churches would hold, and I guess they would, uh, you know, pledge money towards this college. And so sure. he would take me with him and show me off. I mean, he kind of kind of <laughs> used me in a good way. Right, 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 right. And, and so I would stand up, and, you know, they could hardly understand what I said, but they thought I was cute. <laughs> Later on, somebody said, well, you know, would you come speak to our church? Uh, the first time I spoke to a church, you know, I didn't know that they give you any money, but, you know, they gave me $5 or $10. It was great. And then one time a, a guy called me up and he said, well, we're going to, you know, we don't pay an honorarium, but we'll take up a love offering. Well, now, look, I didn't know what the words love offering meant. <laughs> you know, I thought they were going to hug me. This could go a bunch of different ways, yeah. yeah I thought they are going to hug me and kiss me and stuff, you know, and I said, I don't know if I want to deal with all of that. Um, well, needless to say, they took a love offering in Jordan. This was back in 1967, maybe 68. Uh, and the love offering came to $220. Wow. And I thought, wow, I, I've never forgotten that day. Uh, what a blessing that was to me because, you know, at best I would have 10 or $15 at a time. Sure. So anyway, so other churches began to ask me to speak. So I began to speak to all these churches. When I transferred to High Point College in 1968 as a junior, I worked with the YMCA, Christian, Christian uh, YMCA here, and uh, a camp, it was called Camp Cheerio. I loved that camp because the director was Max Cook, and he was criticized why he would uh, talk about Jesus Christ every night at Vespers. And somebody said, well, you know, uh, you shouldn't because you might have some Jewish students and so on. And he said, no, this is a Christian camp. Um, and, he, and he stood up uh, for his faith in such a courageous way that it left an indelible impression on me. Mm. And later I became the director of the camp. Well, anyway, in the interim, I was working in a local church here as a youth director, you know, part-time. Yeah. And um, forgive my immodesty, I was very successful. The kids liked me. I took the program from 15 kids to 130 kids. And I looked for creative ideas you know, for retreats, for, for Sunday night, you know, uh, youth fellowships and so on. And I had a hard time finding it. And finally, I found a company based in San Diego, and they had these programs, but they seemed a little bit, um, I'll just use the word liberal, you know, there wasn't exactly what we were trying to do in our church sure. here in High Point. And so when I, I went to grad school and, and, and graduated and, and had a choice. You know, I could go work in a bank or something like that, or I could start a company that can fill a need that I experienced when I was a youth director. And that's what I did. I started a company called Adventures with Youth. Yeah, hugely and, successful. Yeah. Yes. And it was, it was, I mean, I started with a little newsletter, you know, and, but the newsletter grew and eventually I had 68,000 uh, customers in 32 countries. These were churches and, and, and camps and, and so on. Uh, and it was interdenominational. Then, of course, I hired all kinds of youth ministers and ministers to write a lot of the material that went into it. My very first book, I'm looking at it now in my office, was called um, What Works and What Doesn't Work in Youth Ministry. So, you know, um, I did that for a number of years. And then here's something you don't know. You know, maybe I was not in the, within the four walls of a church because I was not an ordained minister as such. But what I did is... I had a couple of Christian uh, music groups. One band was called The Bridge. And we, because of the subscribers to the newsletter, and of course I developed many, many other products that they could use. Remember, this was pre-computers and so on. So if a church published a newsletter or a bulletin and they needed art, you know, they would buy the art from me and, and stick it on their mimeograph or whatever, however way they printed it. And so these churches started inviting us to speak. And so I was speaking, I was speaking as many as 50, 50 weekends a year in churches around the country. And I would take the musical groups with me. One was a duet and one was an actual band. I would lead youth leadership programs. I would preach on Sunday morning in the church and we would begin on Friday night. And we were very, very popular, and we would, we would just go all over the country. And out of that came my, you know, my corporate work where somebody in the church saw me speak and said, would you come speak to my company? One thing led to another. But that's, that's a long story to say I love those, those years. And that's why uh, Jordan, in, a, in an amazing kind of way, God's hand works 
you know, in, in ways that you and I sometimes uh, simply cannot predict. So after success in business, isn't it amazing that then I had the opportunity, the invitation to come back to lead my alma mater as its president when my alma mater was, was really broken. You know, it was $100 million in deferred maintenance, only 1,400 students, very few people ever heard of it, and so on. And I came back, and, and I realized that, you know, I thought I'll do it for a couple of years, to be honest, and, and here I am. I'm completing my 16th year this month, and, and we've been spectacularly successful. And then I realized, you know, I love it because it is with young people again, and I love it because I am free to talk about my faith, and I am free to say we are a God family country school. And I, I, I am delighted to be in a place where we have a chapel with a cross inside and outside. And yet we are an inclusive society. We welcome and love all of God's creatures. And so, so that's, you know, I, I don't know. God has a plan for us, my friend. And, and, um, and God gives me energy every day and, and hopefully a little bit of wisdom to uh, make some tough decisions like this fall. We opened up even with this pandemic and, and it went very, very well uh, to the amazement of parents and so on. I'm so glad you brought that up because I want, I want to ask you about this. So you, you know, you've proven clearly you've mastered the art of leadership in a couple of different domains, right? In the church, in business, now in higher education, you've had this spectacular 16-year run at High Point. And the, the reason why I invite you on the show was Jenna Fortier, who we mentioned before, who now works on my team. Uh, we were talking one day and she, who's, she's in grad school at High Point. She mentioned how extraordinary your leadership has been through COVID-19. And uh, I was going to ask, what that looked like specifically, but I said, don't tell me, I want to have Dr. Kubain on and I want to ask him directly. So you guys opened up in the fall. What were some of the decisions you made throughout this crisis that you think would cause a student like Jenna to admire your leadership throughout the pandemic? Well, uh, clearly Jenna is very generous and that I appreciate that very much. First of all, uh, Jordan, I believe in the power of prayer and I talk to God every day. If I'm at the beach and I like to walk when there's nobody else on the beach, so I can talk out loud. And my, my chats with God are 99% thankfulness monologues, thanking God for strength, for wisdom, for uh, surrounding me with angels who are willing to help, and for giving us the opportunity to survive and thrive even in the midst of, of crises or challenges. I cannot overestimate what the power of prayer carries forth in my life. If I believe, if, if we got up in the morning and we thought, we thought, hey, we got the answers, we can go do it, I think we fail. That's called overconfidence. And I don't ever want to be overconfident. So as far as the pandemic is concerned, we told the parents and the students last May that we will open up. As you can imagine, there was a lot of pressure on us not to open up. And a lot of our sister schools didn't open up. And the media, of course, you know, talked ill of, of those kinds of missions. But I, I believe that, you know, if God wants us to open up, we'll open up and we'll work our hearts out and we'll make it happen. So, so the first thing that I did is I appointed a task force of very learned people on my team and people in charge of all the major areas. And we met every single day, sometimes twice a day. And we, we, we were very, thoroughly prepared. We started last March. Second, I committed resources. I said, if we expect those students to come back and be in our midst, uh, that means their parents entrust us with their children. That means we have to make sure that they're safe. And so no resources ought to be held back, whether they're financial or human resources or facility resources, whatever it might be. And so we, I made that very, very clear. I also communicated with, with everybody ad nauseum. I mean, I communicated every day I would do a video or I would send a, an audio message or an email. And I mean every day to parents, to students, to faculty, to staff. I wanted them to know that the leader of the institution has faithful courage and that while we don't have all the answers, we certainly are prepared to do whatever it takes to make sure everybody's safe. 
And, and I communicated all the things that we've done, everything from distancing to masks. I provided masks free and so on. I made it very, very easy for people to follow the rules. And the rules should be followed out of respect for other people here. We are a community and we must look after each other. Jesus said, if you've done it unto the least of the, your brothers and sisters, you've done it unto me. And I said, even in during these difficult times, we will not dilute our efforts for service learning, meaning reaching out in the community, feeding the hungry, clothing those who need it, providing for the homeless, etc., etc. Yeah, looking back over it, I think that worked with people. People want to be led. They want to be believers. They want to believe that that this leadership message works, that this system will work. But then you have to prove it, obviously, with execution and action. And so when we got into a situation of COVID-19, and of course we weren't naive, we knew we were going to have some of that, uh, our system worked. I had already booked eight hotels, you know, to put our students in them. We already booked additional volunteers to deliver food. We already we had all that under control. And the parents were amazed and they kept writing beautiful things about us, uh, you know, on social media and so on. Um, and so once people got the feeling like this school has got its act together, I think I think they relaxed a little bit. The fear factor, which, as you know, prohibits us from doing anything. Uh, fear, you know, is quite often the absence of faith. I mean, um, you have to have faith and and you have to be committed to getting the work done. Yeah, but it's not it's not blind faith, right? You're not saying this isn't dumb courage, right? Where it's like, you know, we're pandemic ready. or not, we're opening up. You guys were methodical, it sounds like, right? Yeah. And planning out every scenario, planning for the worst case scenario, kids getting sick, booking hotels, staffing up on resources. Yeah, so you had courage, but you also were responsible in planning for the worst case so that you instilled confidence in the parents, right? That's exactly right. That's why yes. I call it faithful courage. That's exactly right. For example, the clinic, we tripled its size and we built a, we built 50% of our clinic uh, was just for COVID-19. Uh, so that you, so that the student who has a cold does not have to enter the same clinic as a student who might have symptoms for COVID-19. We also were very concerned about the quality of life on campus. In other words, when you when you distance and so on, you don't have any, you can't go to ball games, you can't do this, you can't do that. How do I maintain here the mental and emotional state of these students as well? So we did things like uh, we would close a couple of streets in the middle of campus uh, every day in the afternoon. We'd bring in food trucks and a band and uh, we would just create sort of a celebratory environment. Again, distance and with masks, but nevertheless, free food, you know, free everything. Uh, so we did so much of that, you know, coming back, the students come back in January, we're building an ice rink for them, for example, doing this all over again, opening up. We have 16 restaurants on campus. Some of them uh, open lunch, some dinner. Now we're opening up the most favorite ones, lunch and dinner and so on. So our students could see and feel and sense that we cared deeply. And guess what happened, Jordan? Because we communicated all that post-March with all the parents and students, as you know, the national, these are actual number, the national, the national figure for total enrollment in colleges this fall uh, was minus 16%. In other words, a, a lot of schools really, really suffered. We have some in our neighborhood here almost shutting down. For freshmen, the number in private schools, we're a private school, was down 4.6%. What happened at Hyper University? Well, we grew our total enrollment by 5.6%. So that's, that's like yeah. a 22% yeah. delta we're talking about. And even though we spent all that money and even though we put all these resources, we didn't furlough anybody. We knew that we have to deliver and we had to make sure things work. And so things were so good that again at Thanksgiving, I announced a bonus for everybody. So everybody got a nice bonus wow. up to $1,000. We give all of our employees $600 a year to eat on campus free. Uh, we give them gifts in August when school starts. We give them gifts again Christmas. So for example, this Christmas was the third the third year we give one of these uh, nutcrackers, large yeah, yeah. nutcrackers that they can put in their home. And they're themed like faith. Faith is one. Love is one. Joy is one. Uh, we have a large nativity scene on campus. 
were very bold. You know, they wanted me to say happy holidays. I said, I'm glad to say happy holidays, but we're going to say Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Everyone's talking about loss at this moment, but there's also a lot of opportunity, right? And you, know, you mentioned 5% increase in growth. I'm curious, now that we're past, hopefully, the worst of the craziness, how you've been encouraging your staff to spot unique, innovative opportunities that this pandemic has brought about? Well, um, again, a terrific question. Uh, you're very insightful because I do think that if you take risk out of life, you take opportunity out of life. And I also think that risk management is quite different than risk avoidance. And sometimes you can't avoid risk. We couldn't avoid the risk of this pandemic. Um, but we can somehow attempt to manage it. And while you are managing it, you you tend to learn new skills. Therein, of course, lie a lot of opportunities. Uh, you learn the, the skill of awareness, that you become more aware about your strengths, more aware about your tenacity and your resilience. You also become more aware of your faith or lack thereof. And so uh, the opportunities are many on the personal level. But opportunities are also many on the relational level, uh, how we get along with other people, how we respond to other people and with other people in moments of need, in moments of pain, or to use your word, in moments of loss. Fortunately for us, none of our uh, students or staff had to go to the hospital. So we've been very, very blessed in that regard. Um, but I think another opportunity is institutional, that we have proven to ourselves that yet one more time, you know, back in seven, eight, nine, we had the, the Great Recession and we chose not to participate. And during the Great Recession, we actually grew tremendously at High Point. And so here we go again. We, we, we proved to ourselves that institutionally we can be strong. We can be, uh, we can have grit and we can be resilient. So I think the opportunities are many. And, and finally, familially, that, um, you know, moments of, of, pressure and, and tension and fear and loss, uh, you have an opportunity to model behaviors for those whom you love, your children, your spouse, your, you know, your immediate family and others, to model behaviors that demonstrate your faith and therefore uh, the, the capacity that God bestows upon you and creates within you. We are going to open up on time. We are ready for it. Uh, and we believe we can deal with what, what may come. But more importantly, we feel, you know, it's like we have a new life at High Point University saying that we have a major responsibility uh, with these students. We have 5,600 students here, four times what the number was when I originally came. We have nine academic schools there. We only had three when I came. We had BA and BS degrees only now. We have many masters, many doctorate degrees, and so on. And we're number one uh, in U.S. News and World Report uh, among best colleges in the South. Number one overall, number one most innovative. You have to I see got, our campus, Jordan, to. to really understand uh, what, what we have here. Um, but, but anyway, yeah, I mean, opportunities are many. But you know, Jordan, many, many, many people on the face of this earth have opportunities. So the question is not whether you have opportunities. The question is whether you appreciate them uh, whether you um, employ them for the good. Um, and some people have opportunities and they employ them uh, for selfish reasons and and for methodologies that do not create better uh, world around us. And some people use opportunities to really truly carry forth the teachings of Jesus uh, to to help others, to, to model the, the faith, to to ensure that we are indeed disciples, and with that blessing come uh, a requirement, you know, to do his work and, and to prepare for his, for his um, uh, coming and to ensure that when people look at us, they, they, see, they see Jesus within us. Yeah. And part of that is just plain old discipline, disciplining ourselves to be able to take advantage of the opportunities uh, and, and the, 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 the time that God's given us on this earth. We talked a little bit on this podcast about 
um, how masterful leaders like yourself do that practically day to day. So I'm curious what a typical day in your life looks like, Dr. Kubain. Yeah, so I am early to bed as in 9 p.m., and I am early to rise as in 3.30 maximum when I'm really lazy, <laughs> 4 a.m. And I'll tell you why. I, I treasure the precious time of the morning. It is a peaceful time. It is a quiet time. It's a time of prayer and reflection and introspection and study. Um, and so I, I make coffee for me and coffee for my wife. We, we drink, she likes a little more sugar in her. So we make Turkish coffee and, and, um, and she wakes up at, at 6.30 or so, but, but I, I do about two and a half hours of study every morning. And when I, um, and then usually at six o'clock, I will go for a walk for an hour with a, with a, a neighbor of mine, and then I'm, I'm at work, you know, 7.30, 7.45. Um, when I come here, um, I have two lists that I live by. One, of course, is a to-do list, which is very transactional. It's do this, do that, you know, write this, you know, uh, look at these minutes, etc. The stuff you have to do running a university. And then I have my to-be list. That's my strategic list. That is, what are we doing to make this university stronger? What are we doing to ensure that our students are getting an extraordinary education? What are we doing to withstand the competitiveness of the marketplace and to shine even through it? Those kinds of things. And then, and then um, hidden in the back uh, part of my brain is a third list called the stop doing list because you cannot become without stopping some things. Right, you start some things, but you got to stop some things. So if you're going to lose weight, you're going to have to stop eating two Snickers bars a day, and so on. So I, I take care of my my to do list and some of my to be list first thing in the morning, working through others. My job is to create capacity in others who work on my team. So the first hour in the morning, I am talking to my team or writing my team or meeting with my team about significant issues that will move their areas forward. Hence, I know that the day is going in the right direction. And I know that now I've got a bunch of people working on this important stuff. Um, and then, of course, I have meetings, uh, lots of meetings. I have um, lately we've been doing a lot of these Zoom meetings, as you know, and WebEx and so on. Um, and then, of course, I have all kinds of board events and whatever, uh, giving speeches, et cetera, lots of faculty meeting, lots of things like that. And, and then, you know, I go home about six o'clock in the evening. At six o'clock in the evening, you know, I, I sit down with my wife and we commune together uh, for about an hour. Sometimes we'll watch 30 minutes to an hour of some news news cast of some sort. And then at eight o'clock, I'm getting ready for the next morning. I am the kind of guy who will prepare my clothes for the next day, uh, right, right down to cufflinks in my shirt and stays in my collars. And uh, I do not want anything in the morning to disrupt my positiveness. I want to wake up in the morning and say, thank you, God, for another day. And I'm not going to let the fact that the shirt I wanted to wear is not ready or some silly thing like that to interrupt my day. Because, Jordan, I believe that there are two things we have to manage in life. Clearly, we have to manage um, our time um, because we all have 24 hours in the day and we're going to manage it for the good. But more important than managing your time is managing your energy. Just going to say this. I'm so glad you went there. Yeah. Yeah, because, because look, you cannot manage your energy without managing your attitude um, about life. In other words, you have to have a growth mindset. You have to say, you know, uh, and there are certain people that you have to get rid of in your life because they are sucking your energy. They're negative. You know, most people, when I say garbage in, finish the sentence, they'll say garbage out. And I go, no, that's not true. Garbage in, garbage stays and, and multiplies. So don't allow garbage in your brain the first, in the first place. Reading garbage, being with people who speak garbage, Attending things that just bring garbage, garbage being those negative things that disrupt your life, um, are just going to mess you up, and you're going to they're going to usurp your energy. So I'm happy to tell you how I manage my energy. You know, they 
they are there are special techniques that I that I have taught over the years many executives. But at the end at the end of it, it's it's all about uh, inve- investing. Your, just like we invest our money, we think that's the most important thing. That's actually not the most important thing. The most important thing is your energy and your health and your faith, because when you have those, you can always make money. Uh, but money comes and money goes. Uh, so, so that's really where my focus is every day. I have a full day every day, and I am, I'm one of those people who dedicate myself to what I'm doing wholeheartedly. But I don't do just hyper university. I serve on a bunch of corporate boards, large boards. I serve in my community, in my church. Uh, I, I chaired a major $100 million campaign to revitalize our downtown in High Point, North Carolina. You know, I'm, I'm highly engaged and also economic economic ventures of all kinds that create jobs and improve people's lives. You're a busy guy. You got a lot going on, right? I'm not so much busy as I am substantively engaged. Yes. Yeah. And you're not hurried, right? There's a big difference between busy and hurried. Uh, So yeah, I'm curious, you're clearly an ambitious guy. Can you draw a line from your faith to your ambition for your work? Are those two things connected for you? My faith is the source of everything. So, so if God didn't want me to be ambitious, he wouldn't have given me the kind of DNA, I guess, and he wouldn't have given me the energy I have, um, and he wouldn't have opened up the doors for me, and he wouldn't have lit up lit the pathways, and he wouldn't have placed me in, in circles of influence that have been quite useful and and supportive, right? So I believe that I, I am a very ambitious guy. Uh, I am ambitious about anything I do. Right. So ambition doesn't mean more personal achievements. It doesn't mean more money or more awards. I could be a volunteer in some organization in town and I'd be very ambitious about getting the job done and job done well. And the reason I, the reason, um, the way my faith is connected to that is that, is that I'm created in God's image. Period, paragraph, turn the page. I don't have to explain anymore. So, so, you know, I joke about this at open houses here. I say, I, I look at all the students who are considering coming to Hype University, usually a thousand of them sitting there with their parents. And I say, you know, don't come to Hype University if you don't want to be extraordinary. Don't come here and mess up our school. Go somewhere else. But if you come here, I want you to, I want you to have a life filled with success and a life that is framed with significance. And, and, and I'll say, because that's, that's what we believe. We're a God family country school. And I say, look, God didn't sit in heaven one day and say, I tell you what I want to do. On Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm going to create some extraordinary people. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I'm going to create me some dinglings so I can make this world, you know, balanced. And then I'm going to rest on Sunday. Uh, and, and then I jokingly say, now, which day were you born on? <laughs> and then I say, the truth is, we're all extraordinary. How do I know that? Because God breathed in my nostrils and gave me life. Because God created me in his own image. If we create in God's image, what do you think you are? You're an extraordinary person. Now, extraordinary could be defined in many ways. By extraordinary, I don't mean necessarily, you know, it's just so like success. What does success mean? Uh, for Albert Einstein, success meant unraveling the secrets of the universe. For Mother Teresa, it meant feeding the hungry. Uh, you know, for Ted Turner, it meant building a media empire. For your mother, it meant getting you to the U.S., right? Your mother was an extraordinary person. Yeah. Yes, thank you for saying that. For my mother, it was not just getting me to the U.S., but for my mother was, first of all, seeing me from childhood to adulthood and, and making sure that I had the right foundation so that I'll make the right choices in life, and then, and then blessing me daily with her prayers and good wishes to do the right thing. My mom was a very, very sacrificial soul. Um, it took me years to really, maybe all of us, it takes us years to fully uh, unfold and uncover the beauty and the enormous sacrifices that our parents make in our lives. Uh, only when we're parents and we begin to travel that journey do we really acknowledge and comprehend uh, you know, all of that. So uh, you're, you're exactly right. This podcast, a lot of it is about ha- helping us all see how the image of God influences our ambition, I'm not sure that's the right word, for excellence, our commitment to excellence. We are God's children. We are to go out in the world and be his representatives and look around creation. We worship 
excellent is too trite of a word. He's a perfect, he's a holy God. Uh, and we are his sub creators called the image him to the world around us, right? That's the source of ambition and commitment to mastery, whatever our vocation is. So speaking of, uh, you know, you, I read, I read an interview of yours and you said something I, I found pretty profound. You, 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 and you talked before about at high point, you guys have students of a bunch of different faith backgrounds, right? So, uh, you know, you're, you're clearly a Christian leader, but you guys have a lot, a lot of different faith backgrounds represented. You said in this article, quote, we're not standing up and screaming, uh, like somebody on the corner of a street with a Bible. What we're doing is living and acting and modeling the teachings of Christ in ways that are sustainable and meaningful, end quote. So I think those words are interesting, sustainable and meaningful. What do you mean by that? Can you explain that? What I mean by that is that when, when my time comes and I leave this earth, there are two English words that are really going to matter. One is, did I influence anyone, or it could be an individual organization, a community, whatever, a church, whatever, and was that influence in any way impactful? So at the end of it all, it's about impact. It's about what is it that you have done in your life that truly helped someone, nurtured someone. And by the way, that applies perhaps, that could be neutral in its application to any faith, right? Anybody could say what I just said. And then you have to, you have to key it. You have to order it in your own faith, right? In your, what, what it is that you believe. I believe Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. So therefore, it's clear to me, you know, what, what, I, what, I, uh, what impact that I seek in, in life. And so uh, what I say is that young people specifically, and I work mostly with young people, so young people specifically are not looking for crusades aimed at them. They're looking for partnerships with them. And you can't just scream at them and tell them, don't do this and don't do that. Much, much more uh, influencing would be, uh, you know, uh, what I say is that we live, they watch, they learn. So a value modeled is twice as good as a value preached. Um, and that's why in society we get so disappointed when we hear about somebody famous in politics or even sometimes in the pulpit who, you know, go astray and do something. We're shocked by that because we have expected from them and accepted from them a modality of modeling of behavior. And when you go outside that, um, that track, we're shocked. And therefore, the shock is very, very Im uh, negatively impactful on us. And so that's, you know, that's what we try to do here. Um, we, we try to tell faculty, you know, you could be anything you want to be. You could be a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever you choose. Uh, that does not give you the right, though, to try to uh, impress about students your leanings in one way or the other. What does matter is when they watch you, what do they see? And when they, and, and I often use this example, what three words would people use to describe you to others? That's a really powerful question. What three words would people use to describe you to others? You know, you'll be shocked what people say to that. You know, some people's words are all very, very um, describe the dailiness of life. Some people's words describe their soul. They don't describe just their actions and so on. And so you learn a lot about people. But, but at the end of the day, I do think that, you know, ambition is one word for it. Uh, execution is another word for it. Um, a desire to, to give it your all is another word for it. But, you know, Jesus gave his life on the cross so that, so that you and I could live. And whatever you and I give, Jordan, is minuscule and, and minute. One reason I love to walk on the beach, we have a, a home on the beach on, a, on an island. Very few people live, so it's a private island. So you could walk on that beach five or six miles and not see anybody. And one reason I so appreciate that is because I'll stop occasionally and I look at the, at the, uh, at the humongous ocean before me and the substantial amount of sand beneath me and around me. And I realize what a, what a speck I am, you know, 
just about the time you think you're really hot stuff because you got a title or because some people think that you have more power than they do, um, you know, we all have to take a recess to reassess. Who are we really? Why are we here? What is the purpose of my life? And um, how can I bring value through whatever God has given me to others? That's why I tell all of my students every day, remember to thank God for the one thing that's been given free to you. It's called oxygen. Just start with that. Just thank God for oxygen, without which you, 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 you can't breathe and you can't survive. When was the last time you thanked God for oxygen? You know, I give everybody a little clicker. I call it the no whining clicker. I say, when you catch yourself whining about food or weather or somebody who said something to, to, to hurt you, were so now so taken by all this quote-unquote microaggressions and all that. I said, grow up already. You know, grow up already. You know, um, know who you are and deal with it and be strong. Um, and so when you whine, we're going to click you. And here's why. Whining is the opposite of thanksgiving. So you, in my view, you cannot have a depth of faith and be a whiner. That just doesn't work because, because thanksgiving is what faith gives you, is what allows you to understand how small you are and yet how God has allowed you to do some big things. And, and for that and for all the love you receive and all the people who love you and, and even the people who sometimes uh, just put up with you. You know, we have to be very, very thankful. And, you know, we preach here what Thanksgiving is about, right? It's got nothing to do with turkey and dressing. It has everything to do with pilgrims who, who got on their knees and thanked God Almighty for the first harvest. And so what is your harvest? What is your turning point? Uh, you know, what are the turning points in your life that gave you harvest? How thankful are you for them? How are you multiplying those in the lives of others? What are you doing in your church, in your community? And, um, you know, and so on. And I think, you know, people who who believe that and who live that are joyful and joyous people. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not perturbed too much by a pandemic or by a recession or even by an election that you may or may not like. They just rise above it uh, because they have joy in their heart. You know, years ago in the youth group, I used to say, you know, joy stands for Jesus, others, yourself. Right, so you put Jesus first. You'll have you'll have joy in your life, and so you know those are such simple lessons. These are, and that's really what that's what the Christian faith is. It's a very simple faith. It's not very complicated. That's why you can come to Christ with a very simple prayer of just accepting as Lord and Savior. It, yeah. it is not. A, but it takes years to unpack it, right? Yeah, it doesn't. It, you don't have to have a lot of theology to be a Christian, you know. So three final questions that we wrap up every interview with, real quick. Number one. I'm curious which books you tend to recommend or gift most frequently to others. And you can't say your own books. You got, you got to come up with somebody else's. Well, I would never say my own book. And of course, <laughs> of course, of course the Bible would be number one, but, yeah. but I assume that that is a, the most common answer you get. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. I, I, give people, I, I give people a lot of books, in part because a lot of authors are friends of mine and they send me books. And I read the book and I pass it on unless it's, unless it's autographed to me, then I keep it, put it in our library here at Hyper University. I like books on leadership. So I like John Maxwell, for example, a good buddy of mine. Uh, Zig Ziglar was a very good buddy of mine. Uh, these are Christian men and, and I trust their writings. You know, when you recommend a book, you have to be very careful. Either you read the book very thoughtfully yourself or, or you have to at least trust the person who wrote the book. Um, otherwise, you could be, without meaning to, um, you know, a false prophet, right? Without realizing that you are misleading somebody. So I, I give books on leadership. I give books on communication. Um, I give books on, on, on excellence. And I give, of course, Christian books. Hey, who would you most like to hear talk about their faith intersecting with their work, maybe on this podcast? I, because I'm a, you know, because my, my background was mostly in business, I love to hear business leaders talk about their faith. So anybody who's a CEO, I'll give you an example of someone you may not know. Uh, Kelly King is the chairman CEO of a company called Truist, T-R-U-I-S-T. Um, Truist is the merger of equals of two companies, one was called BB&T, 
One, one was called SunTrust. So Truist, Truist has got 60,000 employees. It's a $450 billion in assets company. I happen to serve on the board of Truist and have served the last 30 years. Kelly King is a, uh, a born-again Christian. He is a fascinating person. He is very, very successful in business. Uh, he is very, very significant in, in his testimony. And so I love hearing Kelly. Uh, speak uh, about his faith, and so that would that would certainly be one that that would be terrific to think about. I love that answer. So, one final piece of advice you want to give this audience, uh, this audience of Christ followers who just want to do great work for God's glory and the good of others. What do you want to leave them with? Well, I, I would say that always remember that focus is more important than intelligence. So, you tend to get out of life what you put into life. And you tend to uh, put into life that which you're focused on. So one must have a degree of clarity about their focus. So, um, you know, faith alone is a great source of strength, but it may not be enough. You have to activate your faith. You have to actualize your faith. Uh, you can't be a Sunday morning a Christian. You've got to be a 24-7 Christian. I would say one should take time to evaluate and uh, sometimes even negotiate what, what, what one's focus is. And the reason I say that is because knowledge does not equal understanding. So you could read the Bible 10 times and you could be a, you could be a scholar. Uh, that does not necessarily follow that you understand what, what Christianity is all about. And it, it takes a lot of feeding of the Spirit uh, for someone to truly begin to understand. I'm still, I'm still a student of understanding. You can read all the, all the books you want, and you can listen to all the sermons you want, but understanding implies that you execute on that in your life. And it is tough to execute on your faith daily when life beats you up sometimes with something pretty big, like your spouse having cancer or you losing a child or something like that. That's when the real test of understanding comes forth. And so that's why I say focus hopefully can lead to understanding, not just to knowledge about, about your faith or about your life or about your relationships or about your business or any, any of those things. No, that's good. Dr. Cobain, I just want to commend you for the exceptional work you're doing. Uh, thank you for creating a university culture that serves students really well. And thank you for joining us here today. Hey, if you want to learn more about Dr. Cobain, you can find him easily at nidocubain.com. That link will be right here in the show notes. Dr. Cubain, thanks again for joining us. You're very welcome. And, and High Point University, they, all you got to do is just put High Point, H-I-G-H-P-O-I-N-T, one word, highpoint.edu. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. By the way, if you haven't heard the episode with Jenna Fortier, the High Point student who built an incredibly successful nonprofit while she was in high school and college and now works with me, go check it out. Go find that episode from Jenna Fortier. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to The Call to Mastery so you never miss an episode in the future. If you're already subscribed, take a second and go review the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. I'll see you next time.